Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ad Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe Shellerud, and today I'm joined by Nader Youngchild. Nader, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. Yes, thank you very much, Joe. Excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with you, kind of give us a quick background, what you do, how you got into the ecosystem. It's always fun hearing people's stories. Oh, yes. Origin stories are the best. They're, they're usually where the most juice is, too. So yeah, my story is no different. Really funky, peculiar path in. I started a grocery delivery business long before it was cool and a much bigger industry. <laughs> missed that, missed it by a pandemic, missed it by about a decade. Was delivering <laughs> groceries up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, this would have been back in 2008 is when we got started. Was running the company and then eventually into Seattle. We started on islands and then we moved into Seattle. Again, only ones delivering groceries in pretty much all the West Coast, definitely the Northwest. And we ran into, we stumbled into going from zero competitors in Seattle to one competitor. And it was Amazon launching their test, beta test <laughs> <Sure>. of Amazon <laughs> Fresh. Yeah. Um, so I quickly went, yeah, went from no competitors to one competitor who's willing to lose lots of money and slaughter us, you know, had tons of notoriety and blah, blah, blah. I came from a blue, blue collar family, you know, didn't, didn't really have the background or people around me to know kind of how to navigate that world or should we raise money or kind of how, how to do that. So I decided to say, okay, interesting. I'm a little bit nervous, a little bit scary. Uh, maybe this is an opportunity where I should go learn from inside the belly of the beast. So a bunch of at Amazon.com emails signed up for our service after we were kind of featured on this local local news thing. And I told my co-founder, hey, man, I got to I need to take advantage of this opportunity and I'm going to email every single one of them asking for an interview. So that's what we did. Somebody somebody one of them answered and brought me in in a really unique role into Amazon. And it's kind of what catapulted me into what I do today, which is help brands kind of blow up their business on Amazon. My role was I was handed a laptop and basically told, don't spend more than too many, you know, don't spend more than five days at any one program or feature or portion of Amazon. And your job is to learn all the ins and outs, learn the secrets of what makes it all makes it all move and apply it to these brands that we care a lot about. So back then, not very many people bought toilet paper and paper towels on Amazon. This is been 2012. And Amazon knew that that was a big concern because they knew that most families, when they're out of toilet paper or paper towels, they then go to a store and buy a lot more things like deodorant and dishwasher soap and laundry soap and shampoo and toothpaste and so many other categories that Amazon would like to sell in. They knew they needed that. They needed to be legitimate in the category that kind of unlocked all of that purchase behavior with customers. And so they said, Nader, your job is to take these couple big brands offline like Charmin, Quilted Northern, Brawny, Bounty, kind of brands we'd all be familiar with. And they were non-existent really on Amazon back then. They said, your job is to make them as big as possible, as fast as possible, so that we can appear legitimate to our customers with brands that people trust so that we can kind of develop those categories. So Sure. Um, took a few of those brands from a couple hundred thousand. I think the most one of them did was a million dollars a year back then. Pretty round, pretty much a rounding year for brands of those size. Yeah. Got them to about 40, 50, even $60 million run rates in about six months. And it taught me two things. One, it, I got the touch scale I never touched before, which is like pretty exciting. Kind of really got my blood boiling. But it, the two things it taught me was, one, Amazon, while there might be people with job roles and job titles and charges certain things. At the end of the day, there's no gatekeeper at Amazon. It is a truly a place where, you know, supply can meet demand. Sure. 
And you don't need to have a broker. You don't need to buy end cap space. You don't need to impress the buyers. You, you know, all of the ways of the old was out the out the door. And it was truly a democratized shelf, which was cool. It's been exciting for me as an entrepreneur to see a platform that really gave, you know, birth to potentially a lot more um, entrepreneurship. That was number one. And number two, it also taught me that Amazon's just a bunch of math problems. If you do the right inputs, you can you can kind of grab control of the outputs that you that you want. And so at the end of the day, you know, I was learning that, you know, Amazon's systems that say we recommend for you or customers who bought this also bought that or when they decide to give search exposure to someone typing in the word toilet paper, do they give you do they give you Joe selling Joe's toilet paper or Nader selling Nader's toilet paper? The person typed in toilet paper, they don't tell Joe or Nader that they're going to get Sally's impression or Jack's impression, and both are not created equal. Sally maybe has a history of looking at the first three products in search results and buying one of them in the next seven seconds, and Jack might have a history of reading reviews for the next three months before he makes a purchase decision. And those are not dispersed randomly. You know, it comes down to your in-stock metrics, your supply chain metrics, how much overstocking are you doing to Amazon in key time periods when that hurts them, and comes down to a bunch of math, basically, a bunch of data points. And so that really inspired me to say, okay, how can I help other brands beyond the ones I was tasked with while at Amazon? How can I leave Amazon, go help other brands? Kind of the, I was pretty idealistic at the time, pretty young, young guy. I was like, how can I go find the the, the Patagonia of every category, brand sure. doing cool things for humans or for the earth and started working with brands and then kind of expanded beyond just that, that kind of mission and said, okay, how can we use data to maximize um, what a brand's potential is on the Amazon platform. And, and hopefully that becomes a, you know, a stepping stone of, of the brand success in, in all their distribution points. That's awesome. That's awesome. So as you're working with different brands right now, like walk me through some key trends that you're seeing. So, you know, you started very early on in Amazon like over the last year or two. Like what's some general trends that you're seeing? Any major changes that you've been implementing or is the strategy kind of stayed the same on Amazon as you're looking to launch or grow these brands on the, the ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, two kind of maybe more well-known ones now, but I think are, are, are worth kind of the airtime. One would be fulfillment space at Amazon, right? As Amazon becomes a platform that a lot more sellers want to leverage, be a part of, as Amazon runs into cash issues and spending money building more fulfillment centers and running into employment issues with getting enough employees to fill these fulfillment centers and the challenges around costs and doing both of those, the challenges around people making you know, sometimes more money by staying at home during COVID versus going to work. And, you know, all of that kind of macroeconomic stuff at play kind of rolls up to, at the end of the day, Amazon has less space than they would like to have to hold your products before it's on its way to its customer. Um, and so that's made it more competitive for sellers to have space. You know, ultimately, you're, let's say if you, on average, for simple numbers here, can sell 100 units of the different products you sell a week, well, generally speaking, Amazon's willing to hold 80 units and they're willing to lose out on 20% of the demand your account could be selling because they have to do that across all accounts so they can actually get 80% of all of the demand they could serve rather than the old days, which was overstock, understock, kind of you could get away with some kind of ridiculous management. I mean, IPI yeah. score was 
wasn't created that. I mean, it's always existed inside of Amazon just because sellers just learned about it not that long ago. There's lots of metrics that exist inside of Amazon stores that are not public. But now, you know, Amazon's done a, a better job of being transparent to help sellers, you know, give them a, an indication, a benchmark of, you know, are, are you doing, are you running your supply chain in a way that's, you know, conducive to our business model? Or are you running it in a way that, that hurts us, is hard on us? And, you know, they've had to penalize more with that or, you know, limit square footage. And then, I'd say that's that's definitely one to give some air sure. to. I mean, it's a it's a big reality. It, it basically already you needed to run supply chain efficiently to you know manage any level of an e-commerce business, especially on Amazon. Um, but I think now with those new constraints, it's just added that much more importance to it. It's it's definitely the unsexy part of uh, sure. of you know running running an Amazon business or an e-commerce business in general. But at the end of the day, it's basically three three metrics that matter. Do you have product available where the customers are? Are the customers' eyeballs getting to your page? And are you convincing them to buy when they when they get to your detail page or your brand store or whatever, wherever you're looking to sell? The the top two are, are definitely sexier, more fun, have all kinds of cool features and different ways you can play with it. But they're irrelevant if you don't if you don't have product there. And if Amazon <laughs> doesn't let you have it in FBA, it's you know, it's it's tough to be an FBM only. So, you know, finding a way to master that I think has become a lot more important than it was before. Yep. Yep. And we, we've definitely seen that from our side too. And I, I think the other major trend that I've seen too is like, you know, very early on, it was so easy to get a product going again after it was out of stock, where lately it seems like it's so much harder to like jumpstart it back to where it was or even regain where it was if you go out of stock for a while. Um, yeah. And so that, that's been another major challenge. One, you have all like the, the different storage constraints and different fees and the scores and everything else like that. But two, if you go out of stock, it seems like it's a lot harder to get going again. Yeah. I mean, so at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's funny to, I've spent so much time now outside of Amazon, but it's funny how much I come back to kind of these, these, I don't know, key pillars that we're caught, we would constantly reference inside of Amazon. One of it's, it's really true. This is not like a myth. They actually put an empty chair inside of most business meetings at Amazon so that as all of us making a decision agree, we check in with the empty chair, the customer who needs to be represented, but it's not there. And it's really true. When it comes down to Amazon, they're looking to make decisions that best serve customers. And if you sell, I don't know, let's say you sell deodorant and there's 20 different brands of deodorant, probably a little more than that, but let's say there's 20 different brands of deodorant out there. Sure. This brand, people, you know, Old Spice, people have been buying forever. Those customers are probably going to forever buy it. But then some section of deodorant category is going to be open to trying new things, whether it's, you know, I don't know, non-aluminum or all the different, you know, way yep. different ways you can make a deodorant nowadays. And you sell your product and someone else sells something similar. And Amazon has a choice. They can say, well, this customer is interested in new brands and willing to pay a little bit more and wants maybe a natural product. Well, okay, I got three brands. This brand has a history of being in stock, but getting low repeat purchase behavior and bad reviews. This brand has a history of great reviews, great content, you know, running Amazon posts every week, like super engaged with my community, but they go in stock, out of stock, in stock, out of stock. This other brand who's okay, detail pages, reviews are four, so it's not terrible, but they're, you know, not great, not as good as that other brand, but I can trust that they always have product available no matter what. And I know deodorant, for example, is a category that if I get a consumer buying on Amazon, I, they likely are going to buy deodorant on Amazon for the rest of their lives. Sure. And so Amazon's going to say, 
Well, if I have a, if I can tip the scale in either direction, I'm going to tip the scale in the direction of the one who's got consistent supply chain. Cause I, I know that I can trust them getting the product to that customer after they have a, hopefully a good experience. And I, I yeah, I, I can't tell you how many brands that we have conversations with where they're worried about elaborate DSP strategies and crazy ideas of getting TikTok influencers, driving traffic to Amazon, all this crazy, like awesome, cool, innovative stuff. And their average weeks of cover on their catalog is maybe it's 13 weeks or maybe it's 1.3 weeks. And we're like, holy cow, you're either way overstocked, you're way understocked. Sure. If items going out of stock, items going overstock, we're like, you know, all that fun stuff is great. But to be honest with you, it's all irrelevant. None of it matters until you do this right. Yep. Yep, totally agree. Yep. And as we're looking at like optimizing advertising, especially as like right now when we're recording this, we're finishing up Q4, getting to the final period of the holiday shopping season. A lot of yeah. the decisions actually come down to your inventory levels. Are you where you want to be? Um, if, if inventory is running low, let's cut back on ads. It doesn't matter how they're performing. You don't want to run ads to put yourself out of stock. And the, the same thing for products that maybe didn't sell through as much as we wanted them to all right, ad performance in terms of ACOS or ROAS may not look as good, but if we need to clear out this inventory, let's do that and we can get more eyeballs on the page through our advertising. But at the end of the day, it all comes back to inventory levels <laughs> and you, you can't do anything else if you're out of stock. And it's totally. also a big struggle and a big cash flow constraint if you're way overstock too. So <laughs> that, that is yeah, the, the one common piece. You, you need the inventory in place, but you don't want too much of it as you go to yeah, and I, I really, really try and strive people to when they when they think of the word inventory to just replace it with the word weeks of cover because it's so easy for someone to look and be like, oh, I got twenty thousand units of inventory, but if you sell ten thousand a week, you only have two weeks of cover. Sure, it seems like a big number, and so when you're looking at your big numbers versus your small numbers, you can get lost if you're just looking at how many commas and how many zeros are on this, but looking at weeks of cover, right? So that that inventory number is juxtaposed to you know, organic demand or, or, you know, organic plus, plus advertising driven demand is, is super critical. Cause otherwise it's so easy to kind of just not realize that, you know, ah, oh, that's just a hundred units. Wait a minute. That, that, that item does only 10 units a week right now. That's 10 weeks of cover. That's killing me. Sure. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we covered inventory. I mean, any other key things that kind of stick out to you too? Like when you look at different brands that you're working with, like what are the key ones doing that's driving to success? Whew. I would say probably the number one thing that comes to mind is not necessarily something specific or new, but it's this concept of not being, how would I put this? Not asking for perfection from your people, but giving them the tools to be perfect through, you know, software. At the end of the day, even just weeks of cover, such a simple thing. But if you have more than, I don't know, five ASINs to try and manage all that in your head and remember What's there? What's my organic run rate? And oh, maybe it had a massive change. I broke top ten in the category, so this week it's a totally new run rate. But my inventory hasn't, I haven't shipped in yet. So like, it, there's so much to manage to try and do it in your head, or to try and do it as a human based off of your past experiences. Is you know, is is it's a bad formula. Um, it's, it's rough. Those days are kind of behind us, especially when you have your competitors out there using tools like data driven or, you know, different advertising tools that can help with automation or, you know, I think uh, an inventory tool, a really good inventory tool, carbon six has one called so stocked. Um, you know, there's tools out there that can take some of the kind of laborious, um, parts of running an Amazon business and basically help you be kind of perfect rather than, 
likely have all kinds of room for error. So the groups that are really a, a kind of adopting that and saying, okay, I used to have a human spend all their time on this. Well, now a tool can make it so that they only need to spend 10% of their time on that activity or this activity. And again, what I see best is when those folks take that human and say, okay, you used to spend all your time on advertising or you spend all your time on inventory management. Now only 10% you need to spend there because you have a great tool that's kind of doing a lot of it. Well, now that means you have 90% more time to go do the things that tools don't exist for. Sure. So that's negotiating for lower costs with your manufacturer or doing the unique product research it takes there, the, the customer interviews or all the things that there's not tools out there yet, or maybe ever, you know, use that bandwidth to do those things so that you can drive your business to the next level or expanding beyond Amazon, right? Take your Amazon success and, you know, find out you're number 10 in the peanut butter category on Amazon and go to go to Whole Foods, go to Safeway, go to Kroger and say, hey, do you want the number 10 peanut butter on Amazon in your stores? And, you know, do the things that, that tools can't do. So I think what I'm seeing companies do best is one, implementing those tools, but then two, making use of that expanded bandwidth that then is created rather sure. than just kind of rest on their laurels and <laughs> kind of stop stop the push. I'm smiling over here because I, I didn't know you were going to go that direction, but I love it. I mean, it's exact approach that we take too. It's we've had so many debates on people who will say, oh, you're using some sort of automation and automation is really bad. Like <laughs> it framed up as a bad word Can to be, yeah. to do some of these tasks. And I think the key thing that you hit on is we should be using tools and software to do the heavy lifting like it's, you know, it's the non-value add, like in the preparation or determining where your inventory levels are. If you can have software that does a lot of that heavy lifting for you, so then you can focus on what us as people do best, which is using our intuition, our judgment, our creativity. If you can supplement the software with those key pieces, I feel like you can really set yourself apart. And the other key thing that I see is, our world is becoming so much more data-driven. And those who can mm. utilize the information available to help make solid business decisions from our intuition and our knowledge and our creativity, I think those are the brands that will really set themselves apart. So whether it's like advertising data like we have or overall brand, seller, inventory data, th there's going to be so much information. And so if you can have the right tools to give you the right information where you can make the right decisions, I think from a business standpoint, those who can utilize it most effectively while not over automating their business, because I see some people swinging yep. too far in the other direction. I believe those are the businesses that will really set themselves up for long-term success. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what they're delivering for themselves is economies of scale. I really view it as the farmer who is afraid to start using tractors or to start using shovels or to start using, you know, the, the, the farmer that's just growing with his hands. Is, it's going to be really hard for your P&L to compete with the farmer that's using a tractor or sure. that's using, you know, daylight data to figure out when is the right time to plant and um you know, it's it's a very. I don't think what's happening to the Amazon world with the ability to use data and use tools is, is anything new. I think it's happened to many industries, and I think the farmer who used to you know do it all with the donkey, compared to the tools that started to get created, you know, and and, and impacted the agricultural industry, I think is a very similar um, kind of analogy. And it's yeah, I, I think it's all about economies of scale. You can have the world's greatest product, but if you're not using tools to identify how to get it again the three metrics that matter. Yep. Do I have enough of it? Do people know about it? And are they convinced and coming back for more? Those three, like if you're not using tools to maximize those three metrics, it doesn't matter that you have the 
greatest tasting peanut butter or the world's best eco-friendly deodorant, no, you know, you'll, you'll lose, you'll lose to somebody with an inferior product who's using the best tools. Yep. Yep. And I think for that analogy too, like if you're switching from the hand-based approach to that first tractor, that first tractor might have some issues, but it's going to get better over time too. <laughs> and so exactly. you, can't, you can't look at the tools, like maybe you got burned by one piece of software, like, there's going to be better options or the options are going to continue to improve too. Cause that's the other debate that we end up having with multiple sellers is, yeah, well I used automated software for my advertising and it did X, Y, and Z. And it's like, oh, okay, well it might not, not have been the best solution for you, or maybe the parameters were set wrong, or maybe it was an early version. But yeah, I, I think just completely writing off the next stages on what you can do for your business because of a bad experience. <laughs> that's another piece that I, I see too, that, uh, I feel like it's a trap that some business owners fall into versus continually testing as you go. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, and maybe that'll help with, I think, I think one of the problems with our industry that's made it hard on the customer being maybe a seller central account owner or or even a vendor central, you know, a a brand manager that works for, you know, a large manufacturer. I think one of the challenges, there's, there's all these new, new company here, new company there, this company breaks apart, new company, new tool. And I think as that kind of, slows down. And as we start to have established brands that are consistently de- delivering, you know, value add and getting better at doing it, you're going to see, you know, look at the, look at the tractor industry, right? Like the, you have your John Deere guy, you have your Kubota guy where, yeah, the John Deere 50 years ago sucked, but you literally have people that just want to, you know, save and have like, I had this John Deere and then I had this John Deere and then it got better and I got this bigger John Deere. Sure. I think you're going to start to see that with, with sellers in the community as they're saying like, yes, I used, you know, I used this version of Helium 10 or Jungle Scout or Carbon 6 and this was what wasn't good about it, but I, I stuck with them and now they're at this level. And I think you're going to, I think you're going to have kind of the established brands, I think will kind of help legitimize that and, and make it so it seems like, because right now it seems like there's a million options for everything. Yep. And I think that can be kind of convoluted for any industry. Sure. Sure. Yep. <laughs> it can be tool, tool overload for sure. So you've been in you've been in this ecosystem for quite a while. Like I, I started as a seller yeah. in 2014. You've been in before me. Uh, so mm-hmm. you've seen multiple different stages and iterations as we go. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking forward to 2023, like any key things that, that you're looking forward to or thinking about implementing or changes that you could see happening with the ecosystem or do old strategies just continue to apply as you go? Yeah, I would say my perspective is like, don't don't fall into the shiny penny, shiny penny syndrome of like, this thing looks cool, this new fancy thing, I'm gonna put all my effort, I'm gonna swing the pendulum from all the things I knew used to matter all the way over to this shiny new penny. I think, you know, staying staying true to, you know, three things matter for selling products online, at least in today's world, for probably a while. That is, do I have the products close to and enough of my customers? Number one, supply chain. Number two, are those customers actually getting a chance to buy my product when they are hand raisers in the market, right? When someone's typing in toilet paper, am I getting my toilet paper in front of the customer when they're saying, hey, Amazon, I'm, I'm here to buy toilet paper. And number three, when, they, when, I, when I've got a chance, I commit getting them to con, you know, buy my product, am I doing the things right that matter at the point of sale? to convince the customer to actually make that purchase. And then the fourth one, the kind of the big asterisk is when my product's at their house, they're having their experience. Am I giving them a positive enough experience so that they come back? 
right? And that they become you know, repeat purchase and ideally a subscribe and save customer if I'm you know, selling in those categories. So th- I mean, th- those are really, that's what matters to sell in e-commerce, whether you're selling your stuff on Shopify um, or your Walmart or Amazon or, or whatever comes next, like the same core functions of e-commerce matter no matter what you do. And I think what's going to be most interesting about 2023 and beyond is the consolidation of, I call it like secondary and tertiary data points. So you can get data from Amazon, like how much how much units did I sell? Where do the customers live? Uh, how much inventory do I have? What was my cost per click? You know, you, you get that data from Amazon. But then now that we have so many tools and so many smart people spending time with that data and making follow on data, right? So Amazon doesn't give you weeks of cover, but they do tell you how much inventory you have, how many units you're selling, and then you do a calculation to find out weeks of cover. And all these secondary calculations that are being done and tertiary and further calculations, I think as those kind of come together and inform each other, right? So add optim, add automation being combined with inventory data, right? So when let's say you're the system, the systems that you're using will detect, hey, you're, you haven't sent in new inventory, and you're actually you have about the same amount of inventory of organic sales you did last week, well, you should probably turn those ads off because you're just selling inventory that's already sold. Sure. And as those kind of start talking to each other, as I think as, um, as you know, people start to bring tools together to inform each other rather than having to be in silos, um, I think you're going to have just so much smarter decisions being made kind of really beyond um, what the human mind is capable of doing just because it'd be too many places for the human mind to look and bring all together. Sure. But as systems come together, I think that's going to be really exciting um, for, for sellers to be able to not just leverage the data of what's happening, but leverage that juxtaposed to a- analysis of data that happened before them so that they can optimize. I think that's, that's, that's the next, the next big thing in the space, at least that gets me excited. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I mean, just to take it to like, so I love, I love the breakdown. So one, let's make sure products in stock and we have the right, uh, right amount of inventory available. Yep. And then to take it to the metrics that we usually talk about on the podcast. So then are there enough eyeballs and the right eyeballs on my product detail page or view my product or my brand. So that's impressions, that's sessions. And then, all right, am I giving them the right experience? Am I showing them the right information? Like, you know, conversion rate. So once they're there, are they converting to a sale? And then after that point, once they purchase, now am I giving them the right experience? Is the product right? So it's like review rate, review quality, and then repeat purchase rate. If you've got, if you're trying to drive repeat purchases or multi-purchases between the brand itself. And so I love that because it ties to a lot of the key metrics that we talk about a lot from the, the advertising standpoint, but applies to the business yeah. as a whole. And I love the perspective too on being able to tie together those different aspects. So the advertising, so the impression or the view side to what your inventory levels are, those should be tied together. And so I think as you can continue to get smarter and tie together those different pieces of what you just described, kind of a nice sales funnel right there, um, Mm. the the better position you're going to be. So I I love that. So for people who want to learn more about you, get in contact with the Nader, where where should they go? Yeah, datadriven.com, D, and then the number eight, a driven.com can also find me specifically on on linkedin i'm available happy to connect with folks we don't just don't just send you off to to sales teams while while we have them but i'm absolutely happy to talk to to anyone myself and most of our team is all ex-amazonian folks as well with similar backgrounds that's awesome well nader it's been awesome to have you on the ad project podcast Thank you very much, Joe. Yep. And for everybody listening, as always, really appreciate you listening to the Ad Project Podcast. And we'll see you on the next episode. 